Many people know about the love of God based on John 3.16, which tells us God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Not nearly as many, however, know the true depth of that love as described in 1 John 3.16. Are you ready to face the truth? Face the Truth is the weekly podcast of the Truth Church of Olathe, Kansas. Now here is your host and Bible teacher, Pastor Gregory Riggin. Thank you, Brother Goff, and thank you to all who are listening. I trust that today's episode will be a blessing to everyone who tunes in. As has been the case for the last several weeks, this podcast will be dealing with the subject of the Godhead. I would like to encourage you to share this podcast with anyone for whom this information might be beneficial. I want you to know that all of the information I'm presenting in these podcasts is contained in my book, Understanding the Godhead, which is available on our church website, newlifepc.com slash resources. For bulk orders, please send an email to bishop at olathetruth.com. As we continue our study of the Godhead, I want to take some time today to deal with a few Bible passages which confirm the things I've been saying in the last several podcasts. In so doing, I hope to solidify in the minds of the hearers the fact that the doctrine of the Trinity is contrary to true biblical teaching. God is not three separate and distinct persons. Anyone who understands, accepts, and applies the four principles set forth thus far should most certainly arrive at the true scriptural perspective on the Godhead that God is one spirit who manifests himself in the fleshly body of the man Christ Jesus. Nevertheless, we will examine a couple of passages which provide further proof of this precious truth. First, let's consider what happened on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 12, when the amazed onlookers began doubting, questioning, and mocking what they saw, the Bible says they began to ask, what meaneth this? In response, Peter stated unequivocally that what had just happened was the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Acts chapter 2 Beginning with verse 14, we read, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There can be no debate about the fact that this outpouring of God's Spirit was the very thing about which the prophet Joel had written centuries before. With that being established, let's examine the prophecy itself. 
Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. You might immediately notice that what God said through Joel was that he would pour out his spirit afterward. According to this prophecy, there was to be some event that would precede the Pentecostal outpouring. It would only come afterward. But after what? The answer to that question lies in the previous verse, Joel 2.27. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now let's look closely at verse 27. The word Lord in the original is Jehovah, the name by which God identified himself to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And God is Elohim, the term used to identify the creator in Genesis 1.1. Therefore, this verse states that Jehovah your Elohim would be in the midst of Israel. Verse 28 then tells us that the Spirit would be poured out after what was stated in verse 27 was accomplished. That is, after Jehovah Elohim had been in the midst of Israel, the Spirit would be poured out. Now, we know, based on Hebrews 6.18, that God cannot lie. So Jehovah Elohim must have been in the midst of Israel at some point before the day of Pentecost. The Jews certainly did not consider Jehovah Elohim to be a triunity of persons. They knew him to be the one and only God of Israel. Joel, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, said it would be that very God who would be present in Israel before his spirit was poured out upon them. And just prior to the event which Peter identified as the fulfillment of Joel 2.28, the man Christ Jesus had literally been in the midst of Israel. Accordingly, it should be obvious that Jesus was none other than Jehovah Elohim. He was not Jehovah Junior. He was Jehovah Elohim. That Jesus is Jehovah Elohim is confirmed in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. One example is found in Zechariah. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The one speaking through Zechariah says that the day would come in which they would look upon me whom they have pierced. This speaker had already identified himself in the first few verses of the chapter. Look at Zechariah 12 verse 1. 
the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him, just as was the case in Joel 2.27. The word Lord is actually Jehovah. Jehovah was the one who stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. In other words, Jehovah is simply another name for Elohim of Genesis chapter 1. When you take Zechariah 12, 1, where Jehovah says he created everything, and combine it with Zechariah 12, 10, where he says they'll look upon me whom they have pierced, you can come to only one rational conclusion. These verses show us beyond the shadow of a doubt that the one who would be pierced was Jehovah Elohim. That one, Jesus Christ, was none other than the creator of the universe, the one and only true God. The second example involves the central theme of the Bible, the plan of redemption. The Bible declares that this plan was not an afterthought of God. The Lord was not shocked or surprised when Adam sinned in the garden. God knew it was coming and already had a plan in place whereby he would redeem mankind. That's the reason Jesus was called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 verse 8, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Of course, he was not literally slain from the beginning. He was slain in the mind of God, in God's foreknowledge. When the Apostle John wrote his gospel, he did so in part to disprove certain philosophies and false doctrines that had arisen concerning the person of Jesus Christ. In his opening statement, he emphatically declared who Jesus was. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word here is translated from the Greek logos, which denotes more than a term which is uttered. It speaks of reason, concepts, thoughts, doctrine, purpose, ideas, and the expression and completion of one's will. Vincent's word studies says that it expresses both an inward thought and the outward form by which that thought is expressed. Now, I think the best definition of logos is a plan, or more particularly, a blueprint. In other words, it's a detailed plan upon which and by which a structure is built. Thus, this verse could rightly be translated, in the beginning, God had a plan. The plan was with God, and the plan was God.
Before God laid the foundation of the world, he already had a plan whereby he would provide salvation to fallen man. However, that plan required the shedding of blood. For Hebrews 9.22 tells us, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Inasmuch as God is a spirit which does not have blood, something had to happen in order for this plan to be fulfilled. Thankfully, John goes on in his gospel to tell us what happened. John 1.14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The literal rendering of this verse is, The Word became flesh. In order for God, who was the plan, to fulfill that plan, he, the Spirit, was manifest or made known in flesh. As we discussed last week, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. At the incarnation, the God of heaven did not cease to become what he had always been, the eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent spirit. Now, however, he became something else in addition to what he had always been. He became what we are so he could make us more like what he is. In order to fulfill his plan, divinity was clothed in humanity. Now, this was not a matter of one divine person sending another divine person. Rather, it was the only divine one taking upon himself human flesh for the purpose of redeeming sinful man. While so many people love to quote John 3.16 to explain God's love for us, I contend that we cannot understand John 3.16 without using 1 John 3.16 as the key. Let's compare what the apostle said in these two verses. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John 3.16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In his gospel, John quoted Jesus as saying that God gave his son. In his epistle, John stated that God laid down his life for us. The only way we can interpret these two verses so that they do not contradict is to understand that the son spoken of in John 3.16 was the fleshly body inhabited by the father. Indeed, God gave his son his humanity, and thereby laid down his own life.
Understanding that God manifesting himself in flesh and then laying down that life to save us was the fulfillment of God's plan, one can more easily grasp Jesus' words in his prayer in the upper room. During that prayer, Jesus spoke about the glory he had before the world was. John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That glory was not as a second person, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. The glory the Son had from the foundation of the world was in the mind, that is the foreknowledge of God. It was a part of God's lagos, his plan which was with him from the beginning. Please consider something and be honest with yourself concerning the answer to the following question. How much love does it take for one person to send a different person to die? The answer is simple. It doesn't take nearly as much as if the person went himself. The father did not tell the son to go and die for us. The father took upon himself human flesh so that he could come and do this on our behalf. That's why John 1.1 says the word or the plan was God. That, my friends, is true love. This provides for us a much better understanding of how much the Father loves us. And that's the reason John could write hereby, or literally by this, perceive we, or we understand, the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. Our grasp of the depth of God's love comes through the fact that he didn't send someone else to die, but he loved us enough to do it himself. If that wasn't what he meant, the rest of the verse makes no sense. John said our love for our brother ought to be the same as God's love for us. He said just as God did it for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John wasn't saying that we ought to send someone else to lay down their lives for the brethren, but that we ought to do it ourselves just as God did it himself. As I close, I want to let you know that beginning next week, I'll be dealing with questions regarding the Godhead. So please write down any questions you'd like to have answered in an upcoming podcast and send them to bishop at olathetruth.com. I would be honored to have an opportunity to give you a response from the scriptures. Also, I want to remind you that everything I'm teaching in this series is included in my book entitled Understanding the Godhead. You can order a copy of the book from our website for only $10 plus the actual shipping cost. Simply visit newlifepc.com resources to order your copy. Thank you, Pastor Riggin. Thank you to everyone who has joined us for today's podcast. We want you to know that we are here to help you in any way we can. 
If there is anything we can do for you, please don't hesitate to contact us. Send your prayer request to prayer at olaythetruth.com. That's prayer at olaythetruth.com. If you live in the Kansas City metropolitan area, we invite you to join us for our services this week, Sunday morning at 10, Sunday evening at 6, and Tuesday evening at 7.30. For those who cannot attend, we will provide a live stream on our Facebook page, our YouTube page, our Twitter account, and our website, newlifepc.com slash listen. Until our next podcast, take care and God bless.